Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 85. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher at Acton Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life of the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. In this episode, I sit down with Katie Ryan. Katie is completing her student teaching at Silver Creek High School in Longmont, Colorado. Earlier in her training, she completed a practicum working with Paul Strode at Fairview High School in Boulder, Colorado. During that practicum, Katie had the opportunity to work with BSCS research scientist, Dr. Brian Donovan, who is working to develop biology curriculum to help teachers navigate topics surrounding race and genetics in the classroom. Katie was able to co-present the workshop, Avoiding Teaching Genetic Determinism, Model-Based Reasoning that Helps Students Understand Multifactorial Models of Genetic Inheritance at the 2019 NABT National Conference. Welcome, Katie. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, as as uh, we had mentioned, um, we were sitting in a in in the hotel, uh, convers- you know, main area, talking to Paul Strode, and he was like, "Have you ever had a student teacher on nightlife at school?" And I was like, "No." Um, so <laughs> he strong armed you into this wonderfully, which he has a great way of doing that. So uh, yeah. thanks for thanks for joining me. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, no, I'm glad to be here because I feel like I'm kind of the opposite end of a lot of people right now who you know, are trying to remember way back to when their student teaching days were, and I'm just excited every day. And they're like, how are you excited every day? And I'm like, because I'm so excited to start the profession. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we're recording this on December 1st. And I remember you telling me that in December, you are wrapping up your student teaching. So you've only got a handful of days left uh, in this role. Yeah, I only, we're on an alternating block schedule, so I see my kids every other day, and I only see my kids five more times before their final assessment of the year, and so it's kind of sad, kind of scary. I'm kind of excited to head off into my own classroom, so. Wow. So, yeah, you are you are literally at the last days. I think so when this comes out, it will be like right before you walk into that last assessment with your with your kids that you've been working with this semester um yep. in, in so yeah so uh so that you're gonna be like right on the job market so this is perfect so you'll add this to your resume of uh of, of things things about you uh you know featured featured on life at the school and maybe that'll be uh you know <laughs> yeah no i'm out there looking for a job anybody who's interested please contact me <laughs> yeah yeah well i've actually had a fan- handful of colorado folks on there in fact uh you know, uh, Chris Chow from uh, Longmont High School in the town you're student teaching, and then obviously uh, Paul and um, had a bunch of other Colorado folks over the over the years. So, uh, yeah. you know, there's there's a, of the dozens of people who listen to this, like at least three or four of them are in Colorado. So uh, <laughs> maybe yeah. maybe there'll be a little bit of a network there. So yeah, as we mentioned, we 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 hung out. Um, I I don't know if you've seen the photo. Actually, I think you took the photo of uh, on that last night when we went out at dinner, uh, which was you know me and Paul and Kurt and uh, Barry out at the the restaurant. That was one of those funny, funny sort of organic moments that happens when you go out to a conference like that. You ended up hanging out with us. I think uh, Kurt called us your your weird old uncles. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yep, my three we- or four weird old uncles, and yeah, that yeah, was. We- <laughs> 
Yeah, it was. I mean, like it's one of the best things about uh, NABT for me is that we get to go out and you know have dinner and have these loose conversations. And um, inevitably, as teachers do, we always talk about practice. And um, yeah, I I already miss it, even though it feel it was only a couple of weeks ago. It feels like it was forever ago that we were we were there. Yeah, I feel like just hanging out and talking to people, whether it's at dinner, whether it's at breakfast, or whether it's just in the hallway going to and from um workshops I just that's where you learn the most I feel like because I got to meet a bunch of people and got to hear about their own practice and pull things that I wanted to incorporate in my own um ideas in my own classroom and so I think finding that community was the biggest part for me because as I said to all the people when I came back is oh it was awesome it was a bunch of nerdy bio teachers hanging out talking all the time about what we like to do, which should not be offensive, but a compliment because I think it was awesome. I really got to meet such great people and learn so much from everybody. Yeah. I, I often say to people like, you know, uh, I gave up cool a long time ago. I came, became a high school biology teacher. So like when students are like, oh, that's not cool. I was like, yeah, it's all right. I'm over that, you know? (laughs) And then I try to point out to them that they signed up for in most often my classes, it's either honors bio or AP bio. I was like, what do you think that means about you guys? (laughs) (laughs) You you signed up for the hard ones. Like you signed up for the nerdy classes. So Uh, first day I told my kids that I was an Uber bio nerd and they could ask me any bio question they wanted to. And I would go on a tangent and I think that was a good thing, but it also got me into trouble sometimes because, of course, they're like, I have this random bio question. Let's spend 20 minutes on it. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah, that is de- that's definitely a skill you learn to be able to deftly, uh, deftly avoid distractions, which I will tell you, looking at some of my colleagues in the building, uh, I... And I don't think I'm great at it, but I know several of my colleagues who are very vulnerable when asked a a question about something that they find super exciting. Um, they can easily be led astray. And there are students who I, I think they, they come in first thing in the morning to try to derail what you want to talk about and talk about something else. So, Yeah, hopefully my kids respect me enough. I feel like it's like in the middle of the lab. They're like, oh, but how does this apply to the human body? And then I'm, I get all nerdy and I end up spending like, 10 minutes with one group and then I'm like oh no I gotta like go check in with everybody else (laughs) yeah yeah I find that too I have I always find that the group that's closest the lab bench that's closest to the teacher desk is the one I end up talking to a whole whole lot (laughs) (laughs) yeah I have windows on two walls of my like I'm in a corner classroom and I have windows on those two walls and I find myself hanging out in the lab bench next to the corner with all the windows. I don't know if it's just an affiliation towards the sun or <laughs> if it's the students that I always put in that lab group, but it's that's my hangout spot. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we could we could just randomly talk about various teaching things, but let's let's get into the question I like to ask everybody. And again, for you, it's a little bit different, as you mentioned earlier. Like, I'm not going to ask you to reach back to you know 20 years ago or anything like that. Well, maybe I am. Maybe maybe this is an idea that formed you know when you were very very young. But how did you start your journey to become a science teacher? What led you to pursue this career of teaching? Um, it's actually kind of funny. It did sort of start 20 years ago, but then like went off the rails and then, but basically, um, when I was little, I used to like grade my own papers when I went home again and like grade my siblings papers again. 
and be like, well, actually, you spelled this one wrong, and your teacher didn't catch that. And so, like, that was a little bit of a teacher moment back when I was, like, five to seven. But I wasn't really interested in it once I kind of got older. I was like, oh, the only thing that I can do with science is go to medical school, like every other bio major ever. (laughs) Um, But that was kind of my goal in college. I was going to go to med school. I was going to be a doctor. I was going to work with people because I loved working with people. I wanted to help people. Um, But then just randomly in my chemistry classroom, um, that would be sophomore year of college, so five years ago, um, there was a little advertisement. It was like, oh, hey, take an elective credit, get your elective credits out of the way, and go teach science to elementary school kids. And I was like, oh, that would be an easy credit. I can totally do that. So I signed up for that, and that is called Step 1 at uh, the program I'm at at CU Boulder. Mm-hmm. Um, And it was amazing. I got to teach kids about clouds, and we did the cloud in the bottle experiment, and I just saw the light bulb happen in all these kids' heads, and it was amazing. And so then I was like, okay, maybe I'm going to do this again. And so then I took the next sequence as an elective credit, and I got to teach in a middle school classroom. And I was like, whoa, these kids are even more like with it, and they can have even more intense conversations. And so that was kind of the point where I was like, okay, maybe I don't want to go to med school. Maybe I want to be a teacher. Um, And there's this unique program at CU Boulder called the Learning Assistant Alliance Program. Um, And it's undergraduates facilitating learning of other undergraduates. So I kind of got to dip my toes into teaching college students as well. And I absolutely loved that. That just was like the determining factor. I was like, okay. Changed my whole plan my sophomore year of college and decided I was going to become a teacher and that I wanted to teach science to kids for the rest of my life. (laughs) (laughs) So did you get any pushback from like family or anything like that of, wait a minute, instead of becoming a doctor, you want to become a teacher? Or was this something that, you know, within the family was like a considered a perfectly reasonable transition? Um, in my family, we have had zero teachers in my entire line. Um, Mm -hmm. so it was kind of weird, I think, for, especially my parents, they were a little like, ooh, like, are you sure? Like, you were going to go for like this really high degree and now you can just be a teacher right out of college. Like, do you want to shoot higher? And I was like, no, this is what I love. And, um, it was kind of more internal conflict with myself. Um, cause I was like, oh, but like I had such high goals, but then once I realized that I could, I could have similar goals that were high achieving in teaching and like really focus on my practice and figure out the best way to help kids. Like those were higher goals for me than the goals I had for myself mm-hmm. as being a doctor. And so, um, I think the internal conflict was bigger for me than the external conflict. But um, once I realized how much of an impact I could make on students, I there was no question. <laughs> so what, I guess the question would be, what sort of model of science teaching did you have in high school? Because you clearly 
left high school and went to college and were was interesting in, interested in pursuing a career that was science based or STEM based. You know, medicine in that is is definitely considered in that STEM uh, pursuit. Was your own high school career a one where you were very actively learning and engaged in that sort of thing, or was it a very stand and deliver sort of traditional uh, teaching model? I, I imagine it was probably some sort of blend between the two. Yeah, you kind of hit it on the head. It was definitely a blend. Um, my high school science teachers, I took both bio and chem and then AP bio and chem and then did a dabble in a few other science classes. But like um, Callie Fister and Jim Mole, um, they were my science teachers and they were amazing. They did kind of, they may message me about this, but they did kind of stand up and deliver a little bit of content but they always had engaging labs or connections to the real world and that was big for me um I always thought you know like going into high school that science came from a textbook but they really showed me that science is in your everyday life um and I try to get that into my own practice and really make sure that my students know that like when you go outside you are interacting with science or when you're sitting in a chair, you're interacting with science. Um, and I think they really delivered that in to me and really got me thinking about science every moment of every day. Um, and I think that was really big for me. Um, mm. Would I change a few things about how they taught me? Maybe a little bit <laughs> now that I've gone through educational classes, but I definitely think they were the ones that instilled that curiosity in me. And I think that that was huge for me. Yeah. I, I'm curious because I think back to what my classroom looked like, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. Um, and I bet you that their practice um, has probably changed uh, because in the last decade in particular, the that was sort of a transitional moment. If you think about like when NGSS started rolling out and when the discussion about the concept of science practices started in AP and, and all of that, that was, you know, right around that time that you would have been a student and wouldn't have necessarily completely percolated through everybody's practice. But it was a point at which everybody started to engage in that discussion from you know, what's the best way for students to engage with material. And so they're coming from a tradition, and I can speak to this myself, of presenting all of this content, you know, as you sort of described it, that, you know, all of the stuff that was in the textbook or science as a as a noun rather than a verb, and about, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago was when we really started to have those conversations about how do we have students engaging in science practices um, much more deeply. And I think that's probably reflected in the coursework that you've taken over the last few years. Yeah, and like I think, you know, I'm still in the, I am still in contact with uh, Callie Fister, and she's trying to get me a job in my hometown. Which shout out <laughs> to her, um, but she has been, you know, we got beers this summer and chatted over like what practices I'm doing and how she can change her classroom and what were like big take-home things that I've learned. And so I think it's really cool now that I get to talk to my teachers um, that I had and talk about practice and see them change. And then, you know, hopefully they can 
be reflective in that and then I can be reflective in okay well I was a student in this situation and this worked and now I'm a teacher what do I want to bring from that and so I think it's a really cool circle yeah it, it is interesting to think about it from a very different perspective um, of you get you literally got trained after again NGSS after the first AP revision um, and, and so it's a very different mindset, I think, than anybody who was teaching 10 years ago, even if they talked about, um, you know, having students engage in science, I, I don't think there was great language around it. So like now you have those practices and it's very easy to say, oh, can students do this practice or this practice or this practice? You got to imagine 10 years ago, it felt much more squishy, <laughs> but, but, but the content wasn't squishy. Like I could say, I need to teach the parts of the cell. Like that's not squishy. This is something that's always been in biology, but like, what does it mean to engage in the practice of sciences was not even a language. We, you know, we talked a little bit about skills, but they were very poorly defined. Um, at least from a broader conversation, as opposed to, you know, as I said, over the last decade, that language has become super, super clear. So it's great that you, you're engaged with, uh, you know, your former teachers who clearly are exemplifying that sort of lifelong learning that's so important when you're a teacher. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think that's really one thing that I love about this profession is not only do I get to learn more cool things about biology, which is always exciting, but I also get to learn more things about how students are learning or how I can help students better connect with the material, whether or not they want to go into science or whether or not they want to go into business or <laughs> sports commentary you know, journalism, anything like that, like finding ways to connect with students in the classroom is so huge, at least in the programs that I went through that, you know, now I have the skills, but I want to continue to build upon those skills. And I think that's, you know, the beauty of education is I get to continue to improve my skills and continue to learn alongside my students. Yeah. So one of the things that this sort of naturally transitions into is the idea that you got to spend sort of extended periods of time with in multiple different schools. Um, you know, we talked about your completing and wrapping up your student teaching right now. You had had some previous practicum work with Paul Strode, and I got the impression that you did a couple of those practicums um, where you were in a couple of different schools. Uh, so how has how working in these with these multiple other teachers in these classrooms really impacted your preparation? Well, I think it's amazing. I think you teach, <laughs> like, honestly, I think it's amazing because um, I was able to work in an elementary school and then a middle school, and then I got to decide if I wanted to do a high school or middle school, and then a high school or middle school, and then student teach. So I have had wow. five different classroom settings in which I got to see different teachers and their practices and how they approach both students, um, content delivery, and also, you know, making sure they hit the standards while making the material interesting. And so... I've talked to a few other um, students of other practical or other universities and other programs, and some of them get maybe two weeks in a classroom and then they student teach. And <laughs> for me, that would just be scary. <laughs> like I would not feel as comfortable student teaching as I do now if I hadn't had the opportunities to see different teachers and kind of have a feel for how I may be myself in my classroom. Um, mm -hmm. I think 
the nice thing is I've got to teach a lesson or a unit in each of those classrooms as well and gotten feedback from each teacher, which is different from person to person. Um, Because everybody's going to look for a different thing when they're watching you. And so I think having that diverse experience allowed me to hone in on, okay, well, I really liked what so-and-so said from elementary, but that's not going to apply to high school. So how can I tweak what they taught me to high school? And okay, you know, Paul Strode said I did a really good job connecting with students, but now how do I make sure that I deliver content? Um, So I think it's been really good for me because I've been able to take a lot of feedback from a lot of different people um, and then observe them teach in their own classroom as well and be like, I like that. I don't like that. I want that. I don't want to do that ever. (laughs) So um, I think that's been huge in creating my own identity as a teacher um, because I get to see how other people interact and then be like, okay, well, I don't ever want to do that. So remember never to like yell at a student ever, you know, or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Cause I, when I did my, uh, education program, um, I did like almost everything else I do. I kind of did it the hard way. Um, I just applied for teaching jobs as I started my master's. And so then I didn't actually student teach, um, technically on my transcripts, I went into another classroom that was in my building and took over that classroom to accomplish the hours. But I was like a hired teacher in that building. Um, And I like literally went into another veteran teacher's biology class for, I don't know, a couple of weeks and ran two units to hit the hours number for student teaching. But I did not student teach. I was, I had already had my own classroom at that point for two months um, before doing it. Um, I felt, uh, I had the blissful ignorance of a 22-year-old <laughs> that I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and no, I didn't feel comfortable, but I didn't know how much better I could be prepared. And then I didn't really regret it because when sort of as you were talking about it, so then in the spring, and this is one of like the weirdest things that happened. In the spring, I was required to take this like one credit course where all of the people who were doing their student teaching would meet together a couple of times during the semester to sort of debrief over their student teaching experience. Now, mind you, I had already, I was already teaching. I already had a classroom job. I had done the thing in the previous semester, but it was just like a hoop I had to go through in terms of like it was a required course. And then I would hear that really it seemed that people's experience seemed to be very dependent upon how they personality meshed with their cooperating teacher. And if you did not mesh with your one cooperating teacher that you had, it was a really a tough experience. Like some people needed a lot of support and some people didn't need a lot of support, but there were teachers who needed a lot of support, but were with a cooperating teacher that like wasn't giving any. And then there were a couple of teachers who didn't need a ton of support, but were getting micromanaged by their, <laughs> by their person. And so it didn't feel like it seemed very arbitrary how people found their student teaching back then. And, and how you know, the university didn't seem to really know what they were doing uh, in terms of making the pairing. And um, it, it did, it kind of felt like, uh, well, I, ju- I just plowed in and I don't know that it would have been any better or worse 
off had I not done it the way I did it. Yeah. Um, because I don't think the system was particularly good. So to hear your experience, and I've heard other people who've said, yeah, no, there's a, there's like a, there's a whole system that's set up and they have, you know, teachers apply to have student teachers. Like I, you were pretty much on your own to find your kind of your own space yeah, uh, back then. <laughs> so, so, I mean, now mind you, we're, we're talking about a time, you know, a long, long time ago. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and and it, but I don't know that I've ever heard of somebody getting the degree of support uh, in terms of figuring out early career pathway as you have described. I, it's I, it's amazing. It's amazing that you had all of these different voices because I can imagine just sort of flip it around. Like imagine that you are somebody who needs like a, a ton of like content support. Uh, like like you 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 don't know your content and you you really don't know science particularly well. You connect really well with students, but you don't know really science well. And you are paired up with, say, Paul Strode, who you worked with. And you need to go in and student teach in Paul Strode's class with his like <laughs> high end research kids and that sort of thing. <laughs> like 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 first of all, you're teaching with arguably one of the best teachers in the country. Yes, you could learn a lot, but there's not a great match between your need. And like that environment, that would have been, that would be a nightmare. Like that, I think that would be crushing. But if you have already had multiple experiences and you said the words like your own identity, um, I think that's so empowering that you are already thinking about the fact that you need to have your own identity in the classroom. And as a teacher, um, I don't think early programs really talked about that. Um, so that I, 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 it's, it's amazing to hear that kind of experience. Yeah. It's funny you bring up Paul because I, I do not consider myself a master of content by any means. I consider myself a lifelong learner, but maybe not a master of content. And so he's like, so we're doing this dissection unit and and human body slash animal body systems. Like here, take over this whole unit. And when he first said that, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to totally mess it up. Like he knows so much. Like, I don't know anything. Like this is going to be so scary. Uh, But the nice thing is Paul's a great guy and he really helped me go through it and held my hand through, you know, the content part of it, um, which just goes to show that like in your school, you can always find those people who may have a better content knowledge than you, uh, but you can always bring something to the table. So like, I think, you know, the students are a little bit more hands-on during that unit. So it really brought out my, excitement on you know bringing the outside world in to that unit Um, but it's definitely a scary that was a scary moment and it did happen (laughs) Um, he was very helpful and held my hand through it which is good but then I also had to you know give a little lecture and that was like the first time that I had ever you know stood up and delivered content to students who were you know 18 17 18 year olds and I was at that point, like 20, 21. And I was like, this is a little close in age, but I'm going to pretend that I'm, you know, a point of authority and you're going to listen to me. So he helped me a lot kind of shape the authoritative part of my identity, I would say, because, you know, he's really respected in his classroom and he really knows a lot. Um, And so I think he kind of showed how to balance that with connecting with students and being able to deliver content in a way that students are excited about, I think. Yeah. 
and of course, you know, Paul could probably take anybody <laughs> and and help them through. Yeah. Like I, as you were saying that, I was like the number of times I've had conversations where, with Paul where I'm like, well, okay, wait, can you explain that to me again? Well, and then I ask him another version and he's like, no, that's not right. It's like, oh, okay. So well, how about this? And like, I've had to, you know, with, with all of my experience, I had to work through uh, concepts with Paul that he has just thought very deeply on and has worked through and has already, you know, come to, a, a deep understanding that he's starting at that's different than where I am. Uh, I can I can appreciate that th- that could be overwhelming. He is a guy who makes that <laughs> pretty easy. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. But I wonder also if uh, the experience of working with uh, college students helped you out a little bit in that regard. Because I remember when I was you know 21 as a TA in in the university, I was oftentimes working with students who were older than me, um, particularly like second career or something like that. And I was working with them in lab or sometimes you'd tu- I would tutor it at the university a little bit. And I would sometimes be working with people who were basically peers. Um, but at that point I had a content expertise, so I was helping them through. So I wonder if some of that experience could help you out in terms of that like content knowledge identity of being the expert even though you may not be the the wise old sage uh, kind of experience yeah I think I it's funny that you mentioned like post-bac students because when I was an LA learning assistant for CU I was working in a genetics class um, and a intro to bio class and in both of them for some reason, I must have connected with the post-bac students the most, and they would always come to my office hours, and they'd come and hold, they'd want me to hold review sessions, and um, it was so great, but it just, the most memorable moment of my LA experience was they were sitting around whispering, and then they're like, and I was like, what are you guys talking about? Because I was just interested because I kept getting like looks and I knew they were talking about me. And I was like, this is awkward. Like what's going on? And they're like, okay, Katie, we have to ask, like, how old are you? And I was like, oh gosh. (laughs) And I was like, well, I'm 20. And they're like, no way. Like people were like ready to storm out of the room. They're like, we thought you were 30. We thought you're 27. Like no way that you're 20. Like what? So, I mean, I think that really went to show that I had some authority over these students who were 30, 27, you know, kind of coming back who had been married, who have kids, stuff like that. But that was just one of the most like memorable moments of teaching in a college setting was that I was like, yay, they think I'm older than I actually am. I was like, they could see you, right? Yeah. <laughs> you were like teaching from behind a screen because, uh, yeah, you don't really project 30. I gotta tell you. <laughs> yeah, I hope, I hope not that old, but. Um... Yeah. <laughs> well, you you saw me in full beard. I, I had, a, when I started my teaching career at 22, I actually came back from the summer with a full beard and I shaved it off like maybe six weeks into the school year. And I could tell like that moment I lost a, a huge degree of like, oh my God, he looks like <laughs> us from the, you know, 18 year old, 17, 18 year old uh, kids who were in my physics class because I was teaching a physics class that year too. Um, and they, as I said, I was 22, they were 17, 18. Uh, there wasn't a huge grade age difference between me and the seniors. Um, 
and I did not look very old when I took the beard off. So yeah, yeah. I my I've had a few students this semester ask me how old I am, and I'm like, well, I refuse to respond to that comment. Or, I refuse to comment. <laughs> I refuse to answer. Like, you know, I just don't. I want them to have this air of like mystery, so that way they don't think mm-hmm. I'm as young as I actually am. <laughs> I uh I used to teach with this guy uh who actually had a doctorate from from Oregon. He was from Nigeria originally. Um and he was like an amazing guy and he was in his uh I want to say he was about like 31 32 at the time um and he had come to the school and we taught in this very 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 small school and um and he had this very you know, he, he had this sort of mysterious aura to him, to the students, because he spoke with an accent, but it was a very borderline regal accent because it was, you know, very British accent because of his schooling growing up. And he would always tell the kids that he was 50 years old, um, even though he's 31. And they're like, you're not 50. He's like, let me see your driver's license. And he's like, my driver's license? I don't need a driver's license. Uh, I'm an excellent driver. I mean, and so he would just go through this whole thing. And every once in a while, you'd hear like the kids fall down this rabbit hole with them. And it would just start, I would burst out laughing because like, there's no reasonable way any, any smart person would believe this guy was 50. Yeah. Like he was clearly like his late twenties, early thirties, uh, very, <laughs> you know, young guy. Um, and then this, this whole thing that he would go down where he would say he didn't have a driver's license. It was, it was hysterical. <laughs> um, so I think the, the intrigue and the mystery and the students having an interest in who you are as a person is always very funny. Uh, but <laughs> I remember, I remember those days very well. So I, I, I fully support your uh, maintaining the mystery <laughs> component. Um, yeah. Though in the days of the internet, that might be a little yeah, bit harder. Uh, they may be able to track you down. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so we've sort of you mentioned it at the beginning. Like we met at NABT. Um, you, I sat in a session. You came down and sat uh, like where I was a student in your class um, as I was working through the material because um, <laughs> you were helping to co-present. Mm-hmm. But in general, like, what was it like to attend NABT? You know, from that student teaching perspective did any part of it feel maybe overwhelming um or you know was it super inspiring like what were your your overall takeaways as you as you walked away from from this meeting um i think initially i was like oh my gosh this is amazing like it's a bunch of super bio nerds but they're teachers so it's even nerdier and it's great and it's awesome and i and I still feel that way and i still feel like it's such a great community and i want to come back at every year that I can and I'm already like looking at next year and prices and trying to figure out when to renew my membership and all all that fun stuff Um, but I also think like you asked the question is it was it overwhelming and I don't know if it was necessarily overwhelming it just made me realize that sometimes like I feel like I just kind of came out of teacher preparation program and I know what's what but I really don't. <laughs> and like <laughs> there's so much experience that's that was there at NABT and so many different ways to approach teaching and so many new ways to, you know, just teach one unit. You know, I learned so much about how I could incorporate gel electrophoresis in my classroom, which is something that like I haven't even thought about doing or like, you know, like I just need to broaden my mind and I think NABT helped me do that but that not not necessarily overwhelming but maybe a little bit intimidating is that 
you know, there's mm. so much out there. And now I need to figure out, okay, I want to learn all that stuff, but I also want to be practical in what I can implement into my own classroom. Yeah, I think the the word that came to mind as you were describing it is my, my feeling is I feel humbled. I always feel humbled when I'm there. Like as much as I might think I have like something totally figured out, you go and you sit down and you hear some idea and you're like, oh, that is a entire, an entire hole of that I didn't even consider. Like, yeah, I, I do this. And I, <laughs> I realized it when I was talking to to Jason Crean, who does storylining. Um and I have been working on doing some storylining stuff with my APs. And I felt like really, really good about some stuff that I rolled out early. And just literally from a, it wasn't something that he intentionally said, but a conversation that we were having and he was describing something. And I was like, yep, totally missed. There's a big hole in what we do that if I was doing storylining the way he did it, there would be this whole extra thing I would be adding in. And, and it was like, yeah, so is that something that's worth doing? you know, how much better would that add to my curriculum? I think it would definitely add, is it practical to add? Um, but you, as much as you might feel like you figured something out, you can find out that there are other ways to approach something. And that means that there's other ways to reach students. So if you have some kids who are struggling, you now have another possible tool to help those kids who struggle. Um, so it, it's, yeah. I can totally hear what you're saying. Um, because seeing all that expertise and all those different perspectives can be can be really wonderful. Um, but also, <laughs> as I said, I, I know some of my colleagues who went uh, last time it was last time NABT was in Providence, so relatively close to where I teach. Um, I think I had a couple of my colleagues who went down there and felt very overwhelmed. And I know that when people go to NSTA, um, which is much much larger, it's like ten. 15 times larger than an EBT. It, oh. <laughs> they, they, sometimes what people say is they come away and they're like, they were just overwhelmed. There were too many choices. There were too many things to do. They had a hard time navigating. Um, an EBT to me seems small and kind of, it, it, it feels like a small community um, to me, but at the same time, it can be humbling to hear all of the, the great ideas that people have out there. So. Yeah. No, I think the people, like I have way more pros and I think it's just that one little like, Oh, gosh there's so much I need to learn still um as my con but like the people there you know really made the community and I got to meet you as well as you know Kurt and all the all my lovely uncles that I had (laughs) dinner with Uh, (laughs) but also you know I got to meet um a bunch of Knowles fellows who are kind of in a similar boat as me you know who are about to embark on their first few years of teaching and um so I got their perspective and then you meet you know, senior teachers who have been teaching for 30 plus years and you get to meet them and kind of get to know their practice and how they've changed and what, how they're taking those NGSS standards and adapting them to their own practice. And so it's all, it just, you feel so welcomed (laughs) (laughs) when you get there. And I think that was the biggest thing for me is like, I found a community of uber bio nerds who are uber about who are uber nerdy about teaching as well and I think you know that's that was the biggest thing for me was just there's other people out there who understand that bio is awesome and teaching is awesome and we're all gonna nerd out together so I think that (laughs) that was amazing and I learned so much from the other people that I got to meet yeah hopefully that's the other thing we had talked a little bit um 
before we started recording about sort of the the role of the social media and hopefully you connected with people either you know got you know, emails or, or or cell phones or found them on you know whatever social media <laughs> you want to use um, whether you know I don't yeah. know that you need to have all of them but um, I do think there's value in having that connection because a lot of times what I will do is it's not right now that I need something but in January. I'm going to need something. And at that point, I'm going to say, oh, you know what? I was talking to, you know, a so-and-so at this conference and, you know, that's that's the person I need to reach out to. Let me pop onto the Facebook community. Uh, I'm going to send them a direct message or I'll, I'm going to send them a message on Twitter or um, text them. And depending on the relationship you have with them, you can build some really kind of cool things that you can also, as you said, everybody there is welcoming, you know, everybody's willing to, if you send a message to somebody, even if they were, you know, if you just saw them present, if you send them a message, you send them an email and say, Hey, can, can I have, you know, X, Y, or Z, or like, would you willing to share like how you present this? Like 95% of those people will, you know, drop right into your, their email and just send you their, their slide deck or send you their handout or, you know, whatever it is they have. And they'll just give it to you and say, here, here's what I do. You know, like, have at it. Let me know if you make any adjustments or make it better so that I can learn from what you do. Um, so that's that's one of the best things, yeah. I think, that if you can keep those connections growing. And I think that's why when people come back every year, they're, they've kept a conversation going that started in November, but then there was a back and forth that happened in March and then maybe a back and forth that happened in August. And now they're coming back and they've been having this conversation that's been rolling for a year and now they get to see those people again so yeah I realized my biggest takeaway is that I need to get business cards <laughs> um because I had my resume but that's big and bulky and like I took plenty of people's cards but you know I didn't realize that I needed business cards but you know lifelong learner <laughs> I understand that now next year I'll have a whole box full of them. <laughs> yeah. I didn't get business cards. I just started a podcast. Um, so it <laughs> may not be the most practical way of dealing with this, but <laughs> that works yeah, too. That's how, you know, that's how I, that's how yeah. I built my network. Uh, one person at a time. Um, so, uh, all right. Well, so I want to dive in a little bit. You, we, I talked a little bit about the session that I went to, um, with you and, um, uh, you know, I mentioned in the introduction that that you worked with that genetics education and racial bias. I also uh, read a big portion of your honors thesis, which may sound weird, but I'm I'm a, oh. I read that that use of visualizing in biology classroom, uh, in which you explored how students could demonstrate their conceptual understanding through drawing. Um, and then I, I just am curious how these experience maybe shaped sort of your identity um, as a teacher, particularly when it comes to teaching concepts that are fraught with, you know, preconceptions or misconceptions like genetics or evolution. Um, how, how have those two projects, because I saw them as very similar uh, in terms of dealing with mm -hmm. misconceptions, like what were, what were some of your take-homes uh, from working through those projects? Um, I think both of them kind of just fell in my lap, which was <laughs> Great. Uh, but I think both of them really connected with me because in my own learning, I realize, you know, I have misconceptions. And it's not until I go back and look at my previous understanding that I understand where I went wrong or how to re 
visualize my misconception or how to better understand this topic, whether it be genetics or evolution. And I think with the genetics work, it was really interesting to see it happen in a high school classroom because so much of the misconceptions around genetics that I have experienced happens in the college level. So that idea that, you know, one gene goes to one trait and that trait is never going to change and the gene is all that contributes is all I remember learning in genetics up until maybe AP bio um, in high school. And so like understanding that there's other factors and that there's so much more going on um, didn't really click for me until I got to college. And I think that is such a vital understanding to just be a citizen in our society these days that you need to understand that it's not just one gene equals trait, especially with all the things coming out like 23andMe. And, you know, now you can be like, oh, well, my family had this weird heart disease. Let me send in my genes and get them tested to see if I have this random weird heart condition. You know, and I think students having a better understanding of that was, is so eye-opening to see happen in person. Um, because it makes them change the way they talk about genetics, which was huge. So instead of being like, oh, well, you have blue eyes, obviously, you know, you have a trait that codes for your blue eyes. You know, now I saw students talking about like, oh, well, like, you have blue eyes, like, maybe that has some other, maybe there's multiple genes affecting that, maybe, you know, maybe there's other factors, maybe a small part is your genes. You know, it's got to be somewhat inherited, but maybe not fully. Hmm. So it just really deepened that conversation for students. And I think that is like one of my main goals for my own classroom. And seeing that implemented in Paul Strode's classroom was amazing because it worked. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I don't know if it would work great for me right now, but, you know, for that, it worked really well. And it deepened the conversation and students really engaged with the material and change their ideas around genetics. Um, And then in the college level, I had the opportunity to work with Dr. Andrew Martin, who is kind of big into changing the way biology is taught at the college level. And he works specifically with evolution. And we made students draw Mm -hmm. almost every other week something that related to the topic of evolution. So at the beginning of the semester, we made them draw what they thought evolution looked like. And most of it was, okay, there's a fish, then there's some creature that kind of walks and it kind of gets on land and then it turns into a monkey and then it turns into a human. Mm, Great chain chain of being. (laughs) (laughs) The classic bumper sticker, right? And so I think that causes students to talk at a surface level view of evolution as well. And so our goal was to deepen that conversation. So throughout the semester, they learned more about like what evolution actually looks like and how we can map it and data that supports it and all these different trends that um, populations go through. And it's more about the population changing and not the individual changing. And um, 
And then at the end, they drew what evolution looked like. And it was a lot more dynamic, and it showed population change, and it showed mutation, random selection. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, I also saw that happen um, in terms of deepening the conversation with those students. So no longer was it a conversation like, oh, well, that giraffe must have wanted to reach the tallest tree to get the flowers to eat instead of saying something like that they're like oh well there was a giraffe that had a random mutation that allowed its neck to be longer and now it can reach the tallest trees and survive it has a higher chance of survival so it really like changed the way students talked about biology and those concepts and I think that you know is huge for any citizen in our world to be able to understand especially with you know tough topics like evolution or genetics and so seeing both of those really made me want to deepen the conversations in my own classroom and make sure that students were able to identify their own misconceptions and then deepen their level of understanding um with those ideas I guess yeah (laughs) I liked I liked both of the projects from the perspective of um Students are not an empty vessel that have no concept of genetics or evolution when they walk into your classroom, even in high school. They have some preconceptions about how these things work. Uh, and if you <laughs> and if you don't address them, all they're going to do is they're going to take the the vocabulary and the models that you show them, and they're going to pack them onto their already existing concept. Um, and both of them, both of the work that we did in the workshop with genetics and the visualizing in biology classroom um, had people sort of have to grapple with their view of things first and create that dis, you know the discrepant event that you can't have this previously existing concept that is false and this new concept and you can't have both of them be true yeah and i think you know some students just like you said, they just stack, they continue to stack on to on top of their misconception. But like, I think the way, if you structure it like they did, like we did in the genetics um, and kind of like we did in the college level, then students really have to face it, mm. like face their misconception. And that that is the biggest learning moment for the kids that I saw. You know, it's like, oh, I can't have both these things happening in my head. Like I have to figure out which one makes more sense and why, you know. And and hopefully which one is there data to support. <laughs> yes, yes, always data to support. <laughs> <laughs> if if it's yeah. if we can if we can really nail it, that's that's the ideal. All right. Yeah. That's cool. And I try it's interesting cuz I I didn't even realize this until we were having this conversation, but I try to do this with almost every unit I have my honors bio kids have a cover sheet for every unit in their lab notebook and they draw a line down it at the beginning of every unit and they write everything whether it's photosynthesis our unit on photosynthesis I had them just write everything they know or they think they know or questions they had about photosynthesis and on the other side we wait until the last day and they write everything that they've learned and then they go back and like cross things out that were wrong or circle things that they expanded or things like that. And like for this unit I'm teaching on DNA, I had them draw what they think DNA looks like. And then I haven't showed them 
show them what DNA looks like at the end of the unit. They're going to go back and draw and expand on their models if they got it correct. But based on what I thought, <laughs> there's going to be a lot of reworking. But um, I think that is the biggest thing is actually forcing students to face their own misconceptions. Because if you have a misconception on the board and you like explain how it's wrong, then that may not be the misconception that a student has individually. But if they put it down on paper and they actually see it and it's there, then I think they are forced to confront it a little bit more. Certainly. Yeah. Um, it's also a, a, a good record of where they are to start. Um, I, yeah. I will say that for my students, particularly my honor students and my AP students, there's a lot of vulnerability involved with writing things down that they're unsure of. Um, and that's a that's something that I have found in particular over the last few years that when I engage in some of those, you know, unpacking what students know before we get started, um, I have students who want to look things up. Like they don't feel confident writing what they know <clears throat> or what they think they know down before they get started. Yeah. So, and I think especially at the beginning of the year, like if they aren't used to that from their previous classes, then it's a really hard to get them started on that. But like, but if you continually force them to work with their misconceptions or revise their misconceptions, then they are creatures of habit, <laughs> I say. <laughs> um, and they start to kind of realize the importance of doing that. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, let's uh, <clears throat> start working our way towards the towards the wrapping this up. And I, I usually at this point ask, <laughs> what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the upcoming years? But like, maybe I should ask you, like, what do you want to like, what do you want to have your classroom be? Because at this point, it is it is an unknown. It is a it is a new thing. So what are you hoping yeah. to what kind of classroom are you hoping to have in the next you know few years as you as you embark on the beginning of your career? Well, I think. You know, like I said way back at the beginning of this whole thing was that I really want students to go outside or be in their house or be anywhere and realize that science, that what they learned in science class is right there in front of them. And bringing the outside world into the classroom is so huge for me. Like I really want my students to be able to connect. And so whether that's they're a journalist and they need to you know blow some wide story some story wide open and they need to you know provide evidence and come up with a claim and provide solid reasoning like that's something that they learned in my class like I want them to be able to have those skills moving forward but I also want them to feel like I know them or I knew them like <laughs> I, instead of an extra credit question that helps support students who are already good at the content or who may be excelling, I always ask them, okay, so we're at week three in the school year. What, what's going on in your life? What's something you're proud of? What's something that you're struggling with? You know, give me as much or as little as you want. And I provide a half sheet of paper and I give them a point of extra credit if they want. It's like mm. super easy extra credit and it really allows me to get to know my students. And I think that I've implemented that in student teaching. And I think, you know, I've really gotten to know a lot of my students that way. And, you know, it allows me to then connect my material to them because not every student wants to be a scientist. And so knowing what makes the students tick has allowed me to be like, okay, well, you know, 
I have students who are interested in, in environmental law. So like, what is something that we can talk about in this class that, you know, would inspire them to continue learning and, you know, be excited about this class. So I think that's another huge point for me. Mm. But I don't, I don't know. You'll have to ask me in three years what my <laughs> classroom actually looks like. <laughs> but, you know, I, I don't know. I want a place where students feel safe, but they also are learning and are able to make those connections um, to the stuff that they're experiencing every day. I think that's my biggest goal. Well, I think you're going to be fine because <laughs> I think <laughs> your answer to the question was all about the students, both the students' perspective and getting to know them and, and that. So, I mean, it was a very student-centered answer. Um, and that's, you know, that they are the most important part of it. As much as I yeah. love biology and we talked about nerding out in biology and nerding out in teaching, um, you know, as, you're, as you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, students that I am connected with that are former students who I have around, you know, um, this morning when uh, we were looking at, you know, we were putting up the Christmas tree and <clears throat> getting ready. And I have actually a former student's piece of art hanging in our, <laughs> in our living room. And I was thinking about sort of the conversation that went into that. And, um, you know, student, former students of mine who work in both in scientific fields, but in non-scientific fields who I have, you know, conversations with every few years, um, you know, that I, you know, checking in with them, seeing how they're doing and, and that sort of stuff. And it, it's because of the relationship with the person um, that we, we had that relationship because of the class and because of the subject, but the relationship was still the relationship with the person. Um, and that was yeah. the important part. And, and there are students who will adopt you. Like they will, <laughs> you will be the person that they connect to and, you know, 10 years from now, 15 years from now, they, they're still going to, they're going to remember the experiences and the relationship that was in that room um, long after they forget about, you know, oxidative phosphorylation. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. I have a few students who are like, Ms. Ryan, can you just teach us next semester too? And then teach my next science class and my next science class. And just, can I just be in your classroom forever? And I was like, Oh my gosh, I'm going to miss you so much. <laughs> yeah. But Yeah. Yeah, no, you you've you've made them ready to go on to something else, but yeah, you, there will definitely be those kids who adopt you uh, long term, especially once you become part of like an institution where you are a part of a school for a length of time. Um, yeah, those things definitely happen. All right, well, before we get to questions you have for me or um, or and our picks, um, I know a little bit about this because you're one of those crazy bike people. But uh, when you're not teaching, what do you like to do? Uh, well, I like to ride bikes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've raced for the CU cycling team now for four year and a half-ish years. Because um, technically, I'm still a student at CU, and I did like a few races. But as everybody knows, student teaching is a little crazy, so <laughs> didn't get to do as many races. But um, yeah, I started in road cycling, and then cyclocross, and high school, I went to nationals for cyclocross, which was pretty fun. And then... Um, College came around and I was like, whoa, Colorado has big mountains and they like to do mountain biking. So I got interested in that and now I race downhill and enduro mountain bikes, which mm. is crazy. kind of crazy, but I'm kind of an adrenaline <laughs> junkie. <laughs> wow. So, yeah. Otherwise, I like to go camp. I hang out a lot in Moab and um, hang out in the desert or ski I also like to backcountry ski so 
going to be doing that. We just got two feet of snow in Colorado. Whoop, whoop. So <laughs> hopefully at some point this in the next few weeks, I'll be up there. So yeah, yeah. plenty of outdoor stuff. Yeah. I was, uh, Kim Popham was telling me about her, uh, she, she races on gravel. Um, <laughs> she's been yep. racing gravel. So I don't know if mountain biking or gravel, uh, gravel racing sounds more crazy, but, uh, they both sound a well, little nuts. Gravel, like would get into your skin. would yeah. be my issue. <laughs> yeah. She, she listed a couple of races that she, she does. I was like, oh, okay. You guys mountain people out there in the West, uh, yeah. I like, I like to put my feet on trail. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you like run. I, I can't run more than like five minutes. <laughs> well, I tell you what, you run four minutes today and you run four minutes tomorrow and then you take a day off and then run four minutes the day after that and take a day off and then run four and a half minutes the day after that. And you know, <laughs> by next summer you could run, you know, 10 miles. Like it's, but it's, it's the journey of a, you know, journey of yeah. a thousand miles. It starts with uh, <laughs> four minutes of jogging uh, so. yeah <laughs> all right well before we get to picks of the episode what are your questions for me um i have two questions just because i'm a newbie and i've been asking everybody these questions but my first question is if you were to give one little tidbit of advice for a new teacher entering the profession what would it be okay um well i think my probably my first thing you've already sort of nailed, which is you have a sense of like, you know, work on developing, you know, your identity and your personality and who, what is sort of authentically you in the classroom. Uh, I think that genuinely that takes like many years. I don't think it's something that you're going to have year one. I think it's, it's an <laughs> ongoing process. Um, and I would say that for me, it really probably took me about seven or eight years that I got to the point where I was truly me in the classroom um, and I think that was too long. <laughs> so uh, I, I felt like I, I was a little bit more standoffish with my students and I sort of try to keep, keep them at arm's distance. Like I'm the grown up, I'm the adult, I'm the authority, you are the students. And that was a little bit of time and place. Um, like when I started teaching and sort of the relationships that you were sort of expected to have. And, um, I didn't really let students in and know much about my personality, but you already seem to understand that having identity is really strong. So I think that sort of a, would be a cop-out answer. Um, I would say, uh, that, not every school is a good fit for every teacher. <laughs> so okay. if you find yourself teaching in a school that you feel like you're like an alien in an alien planet, um, <laughs> I wouldn't necessarily blame yourself or think that that you are not cut out to be a teacher. Um, I would think that this may not be a great fit. Um, you may not be providing what this school wants it to provide for students, even if you feel like you can provide some value to them. They may be looking for something that is different than you. And so if you go to a place where they want a very structured, very traditional content presentation, you may feel very out of place. But that doesn't mean that what you value as an educator is not important. Um, yeah. And that it just means that maybe you need to find a different place where you're a better fit. Uh, 
And I think that for me, I was very fortunate that in my first school, I had a really good fit. And unfortunately, they cut my teaching position because um, <laughs> I was the new one in and they cut it from an 80% position down to a 20% position. Uh, <laughs> um, and I had hoped that they were going to make it from an 80% to a full time, but they went <laughs> the other way. Uh, and so I had to leave that place. And I went to another school where I literally felt like I was teaching on a weird planet where I didn't understand what any of the adults in that building were doing. Um, <laughs> and I felt yeah. like a very much an outsider and I had wished, you know, I, I was fortunate that I had had the previous teaching experience and I was still connected to my previous department head and what it was like to work in that building and what it was like to have supportive colleagues. And, um, I was glad that I had a position, but if I hadn't had that, I don't know that I would be a teacher today because I went into a school where I probably would have left at the end of the year and said, well, I like the kids, but teaching's awful, um, because I didn't like the feel that I had in that school. So, um, yeah. and I taught in four different schools in my, uh, first five years teaching. So, um, it took me a few years to find the place that was the right fit for me. And then I've now been at that school for 20 years. So, yeah. um, if it's teaching is something you really want to do, th know that, that different schools have very different feels and very different fits. And it may take one or two tries before you find the place that's the right fit for you. That's good to know, because I'm always worried, like, oh, my gosh, it, will it look bad if I've been to, like, four different schools in my first, like, five years or, like, I don't know, you know? Yeah. Like, <laughs> I would say if you have, like, so for me, like, I had a story, like, my first job, like, they would have completely kept me, but they cut my position. So, like, that was not really anybody's fault, and, you know, my department head would, would go to bat for me and would write letters for me, and that was great. Second school was weird, and... I honestly, like, I put it on my resume, but I pretended that it, like, didn't exist. Uh, and there were plenty of other schools that were looking for people. And I went to a school that was actually a really good fit for me as a third-year teacher. And I taught there for two years. But I knew having been in a couple of other schools and started to figure out sort of who I was and what I wanted, that after a couple of years, that it was a school that I wasn't going to really grow at much beyond, like, I was going to hit a ceiling in terms of my professional growth in that building and in the culture of that school and that it didn't allow me to do the things I really wanted to do from a teaching perspective. Um, and, and so I was, you know, it was a journey. And then when I was going, I was at a school and they were happy with me. And it wasn't that, you know, it was a good fit for me as a third year teacher, but it wasn't a great fit for me by the time I was a fifth year teacher. Um, yeah. And, and I took, like, at that point I was like, oh, I had figured out what the type of school I needed to be in and that would be the right fit. So, you know, it's, I think that there's a little bit of a journey that kind of goes on in those first few years. And if you're fortunate, and I know many people who are, you go into a school and there's room for both you and the school to grow. And that's like awesome. That's like the best experience where you're like, oh yeah, it's a little traditional now, but I can see that there's goals and there's missions and they're working in a particular direction. And I would say that's the case of the school that I'm in now. Um, oh, cool. It's not my school is not perfect. It it needs to grow in a lot of areas, but I'm happy about that because I need to grow in a lot of areas, and so it's it's a nice fit in that way, and I'm a good match for my students and and all of that stuff. But it's um, yeah, the it's it's definitely a journey for that. But as I said, of the first couple of schools I was in a school that I was like, well, I don't know what any of the grownups are talking about. Kids would come to me and say like, why why is this a rule? And I'd be like, I don't know. I probably shouldn't say that out loud. <laughs> but, yeah. So especially at like 23, like I was like, I don't know what any of the grownups in this building are doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that might be a little, so, a little bit of it. Yeah, 
And you had a second question? Yeah. Um, if you were to, if, ooh, where was my question? Oh, what is one thing that I absolutely need in order to start my own classroom? Oh, gosh. Oh, God, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, a lot a lot of grant money. Um, I don't know. <laughs> uh, what is one thing that you need to start your own classroom? Um, hmm. I would say, uh, I would say a, a, a well-polished syllabus okay. that, that meets your mission. That is like an achievable mission for year one. Like okay. you should have a sense of this is not going to be perfect. This is not going to be my forever syllabus, but I know like roughly how many assessments we're going to have, the types of assessments we're going to have every quarter, like how the students are going to be, you know, what kind of feedback am I going to give students and how that's going to be doing it and what we're going to be doing during this year. And within there, there will be some built-in flexibility so that you describe a range of possible assessments that you could use and draw the toolbox from but you you have a sense of the toolbox you're going to use to provide students with feedback on their growth throughout that first year that will serve you well in case it's like a really good population. It's sort of an op op optimal, ideal like learning cycle where they don't need a lot of points and they don't need a lot of grades, but like they're on that cycle and they're doing work for you. Or if it's a group that needs a little bit more point motivation, um, and you're not quite getting them to buy into the feedback model you wanted, you could adjust that in some sort of way. So um, I definitely would write it in a nice broad category <laughs> <laughs> so that you've got uh, a way of incorporating a variety of different feedbacks in when figuring out their their grades um, so that you have a nice toolbox to draw from. Huh, that's pretty good. I was expecting like, oh, you need a box of markers, but that was way better than that. <laughs> well, well, what I think about is like, I remember and going back to that second year of teaching, which I, again, I, like awful, like I hated the whole year, but I learned so much about teaching that year. Um, I was given this like physical science class that was like half a year of, of chemistry and half a year of physics. And they were freshmen and they were awful. They were like super immature. And they had, I had a group of kids that were a bad mix of kids um, to have a young teacher who didn't know what he was doing in the room. I mean, that was really it. I just did not have much going on um, yeah. in terms of like classroom management and planning and organization. I just like, there was so much you don't know when you're, you're a new teacher. And again, I didn't have a student teaching <laughs> background. I had just worked in one building. So I just didn't have a great toolbox. And um, like nobody was doing their homework and homework did not motivate these kids. And so like, I would go around and check homework and like, like I had three or four kids doing homework and then like my activities would like completely fall flat. Like my homework is to do this thing to prep for a lab. And then I'd walk in and like nobody did the homework. Like, yeah, I didn't know what to do. So then I just started giving them quizzes every day on homework. I gave them homework quizzes like every day for like <laughs> 26 days in a row. Whew. And like the, they started piling up. And so like they would literally walk in and I'd give them a five point, a five point question, you know, five uh, question, five point quiz every single day on their homework. I stopped checking their homework. I just started doing their quizzes. And you know what? They all started doing them because they were mo they felt that the quiz was a bigger stakes than the test. 
Why? I have no idea. I cannot tell you why these 14 year olds like responded to one assessment, not another, but I was glad that I had like a syllabus that I allowed me to like draw from yeah. that gave me some flexibility in my grading that even though that's not what I had intended to do, um, I had a, I had put a limited set of tools in and had I, because I had that limited set of tools, I, I went to a different tool that was in my syllabus to try to motivate students. Uh, I wasn't thrilled about it, but again, I then got them sort of riding that wave of doing the stuff to prepare for classes and then I could do activities and then I could prepare them. And, and I remember actually being observed by the superintendent, like, I don't know, like a week after I had finished that, like every single day quizzing thing and I'd stopped it. And the day I stopped it, they were like, what, no quiz? I was like, no, I think you guys are good. I think you guys are ready. And then we went on and I was observed about a week later by the superintendent. And he was like marveling at how wonderful the class culture was and (laughs) how like how the students all seemed to be really engaged. I was like, (laughs) I just went through like a month and a half of like, just basically like, like point beating into them that they had to prepare. Uh, to get it to that point. But like, again, having a syllabus that allows you to sort of, I clearly had laid, I wish I had clearly laid out a little bit more like mission and vision about what my goals were for the course in that. But by having like a set of tools in there, it gave me some pieces. So um, to me, the the syllabus is a, a living document. It's also a uh, it's a roadmap, roadmap for what the students should understand as they come in. And it should have both sort of mission and vision, but also some versatility to sort of meet the students where they need, you know, where yeah. they are. Yeah, some flexibility for each group of students that come through your door, I guess. Yeah, but I don't think you really need that. I think you'll be fine. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All yeah. right. Well, I'll work on let's, it. <laughs> yeah, we're all a work in progress. So. <laughs> I don't know. I'm talking to people like you and Rachel who are at NABT and in your early 20s. And I'm like, God, I like went to my first NABT when I was 40. Um, All those years where I like stumbled through the dark on my own. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was an amazing experience. I, yeah, yeah, loved it. (laughs) All right. So let's get to picks of the episode. Um, So, uh, Katie, what is your pick? Um, I picked an article um nature that was i guess like three days ago um (laughs) but they're doing stem cell therapy um to repair like broken hearts so when people have cardiovascular issues their actual like muscle cells start to die um they did this thing in mice where they were able to put stem cells and fix their um heart and actually sometimes it made the heart a little bit better which i thought was so cool because that just goes to show when science does something more than you think it's going to do and it turns out to be either a better result or a worse result but it still goes to show that science can't always be predicted and i think (laughs) it's super cool (laughs) yeah and so you we put a link in here to the um to the summary article, sort of the sort of that secondary source. Yeah. Uh, primary source article is, as always, behind a paywall. Um, yep. <laughs> um, you can, but there is a link in the the notes to the uh, to the abstract that you could read if you want to. But it's a nice summary article of how they use stem cell therapies um, in here. Uh, 
and they used immune system to help repair. When you said repair a broken heart, it made me think of like, this is definitely a biologist's uh, podcast and not like a romance podcast where, you know, <laughs> when you, <laughs> the, the phrase repairing a broken heart makes me think that it's like, we should have some like very emo music. in the um, Maybe, maybe you could just insert a little bit right there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. All right. Well, uh, my pick of the episode is um, is a really dark video that was put out by uh, the New York Times. It's called uh, Revenge of the Bacteria, and it says why we're losing uh, the war. Uh, and specifically, it's about the rise of antibiotic resistance. Um, it gives a little historical uh, idea behind it, but it really sort of describes sort of how we've gotten to basically a, an antibiotic winter, like a point where there are going to be and there currently are many uh, pan-resistant antibiotics um, and sort of what it is as an issue. And uh, this is something that I am going to be working with uh, my students on um, in an upcoming unit where I actually frame a whole unit on uh antibiotic resistance because it's just such a great evolutionary uh, story um, and it's so relatable um, and there's many storylines that are out there. So um, I know that there is a why don't antibiotics work the way they used to uh, example of uh, of, of a storyline and curriculum um, that I've used before in the past. Um, I'm working on something that's a little bit more AP centered um, that focuses on also how to search for antibiotic producers in the soil using tiny earth. Oh, that's uh, cool. Uh, curriculum. I know. So uh, yeah, it really ties into a really nice hook, I think, for students. Yeah, it's funny because I did my whole cell unit on antibiotic resistant. Like that was my storyline for cells. And it was amazing because like the first day we showed like the frontline video of antibiotic mm -hmm. resistant bacteria. And one of my girls in my class goes, well, my dad, like, told me that I never had to take my full dose of antibiotics. So I've never taken a full dose of antibiotics. Am I going to die? And like, first it caught me totally off guard because I was like, you had never taken a full dose of antibiotics and you're 16. Like, whoa. <laughs> and then second of all, like, no, you're not going to die, hopefully. But I'm not going to say that out loud. But like, no, you'll be okay. Just hopefully, you know, you're – bacteria haven't mutated and it led to a great discussion about like mutation and why it's random and it's not necessarily always predictable but yeah it's a huge thing that's happening and I think yeah I was I saw your link and I was like oh my gosh I wish I would have seen that like four months ago <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was one of those things you take it you drop it in that little folder with your little story that you got and uh yeah I think I, I it's one of those things where it, it's something I want to I want to use this as a maybe a possibly different engager because I use that frontline um, story as well um, in our first year bio, in our honors bio. So I was looking for maybe a different video yep. that I could use as a spark um, or as an engager. Um, so this is another alternative, uh, an alternative source. It's also short. It's like less than 10 minutes. Yeah. So I think that's good. All right. Well, Katie, thank you for uh, for joining me and being the uh, first student teacher ever on Life of the School. You know, we're three and a half years in, and uh, our first uh, our first student teacher. Uh, 
Yeah, let me give my credits. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Uh, people can support this episode by going to patreon.com slash lots. Um, I post up episodes usually a few days early for my uh, Patreons. In fact, I posted one up on Thanksgiving for my uh, Patreons before the December 1st episode. Uh, music on this is, and every episode is provided by Jake Jenkins and X Magicians, as we mentioned earlier, former students of mine. Uh, Jake graduated high school in 2006. Um, <laughs> And he was the one I reached out to when I wanted music for my <laughs> podcast. So uh, he generously lent me uh, songs. And also sometimes my clips of music in between when I do compilation episodes are a little guitar, guitar rift. He sent me uh, he sent me a few of those for my show. So uh, show notes are posted on Life of the School as well as on my Patreon page. And you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets. Um, and uh, you can also follow this show at Life of the School on Twitter. Uh, Katie does not yet have Twitter. She has yet to commit to her uh, social media teaching personality of choice yet. So thanks for joining me and I will talk to everybody soon. Yeah.